that today on anniversary Sunday so everybody would have a chance to see, you know, uh, our, without a doubt, our children are, are the most important commodity we have. And, um, I, you know, I don't have a special message today. Normally when you do a special day, you prepare a special message. And I, and I had thought about doing that. I had a couple of things I really wanted to talk about, but there's nothing that I can't lay out uh, later on down the line someplace. But I thought today at Anniversary Sunday, uh, probably um, we do on Anniversary Sunday what we always do, and that's just teach the Bible and teach the truth of God. It's what we do, and it's what we're all about. And I think today, based on where we're at, where we've come from, and what you saw today at camp, uh, for those of you that experienced camp, what you went through, uh, I think today's message will, will help you in a great way. And last week we began chapter 8, uh, verses 7 through 21, and it was our second lesson on Proverbs chapter 8, if you remember. <clears throat> I told you chapter 8, without a doubt, is the deepest chapter in the Bible. There's no question about it as far as its spiritual depth is concerned. Uh, it's, uh, it all deals with the person of Christ, uh, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, it's an incredible chapter. And I told you last week, it really lays out the person of Christ typified through wisdom and understanding, which ultimately, that's what Christ is. And I think Proverbs chapter 8, in a lot of ways, deals with the central core, the heart of New Testament Christianity and the believer, because no matter what we know about the Bible, no matter what we try to do for God, or what we even do for God, uh, all of that means nothing if you don't have the personal relationship with God on a daily basis. I've, I've known many, many people in my life who knew the Word of God, who knew the book, but they never took the time to learn the author of the book. They never took the time to build that relationship that is central to everything. And it was all about head knowledge. And of course, head knowledge is valuable, but heart knowledge needs to override head knowledge, and that's where it starts. And you remember last week we talked about six major principles. We talked about, first of all, the importance of words in the Bible. Just the one-syllable, two-syllable key words that are found in the Scripture. We talked about how that the Bible is a plain book to understand. Nothing complicated about it. We saw how that Christians uh, have to have a sense of right versus wrong as laid out in the Bible. Uh, the right thing that the Bible teaches us. We talked about the aspect of the true riches versus the false riches. And then Thursday night, I talked about the seven areas of stewardship found in the Bible. Somebody asked a question, and we went through those and laid those out for you. The, one of the things we talked about last week was the witty inventions that man comes up with to get us all around the Word of God and how that the, the Bible lays those things out, shows us the truth versus error. And then the thing we talked about was the strength of God in our lives. You know, we want to be strong for the Lord. <clears throat> we talk about Christian maturity and Christian strength. But we learned last week that the strength of God in our lives only comes from the wisdom and the understanding of God in our lives. We've got to have the principles. And today we're going to look at yet another great truth found in verse 17. We're going to kind of work our way through this chapter uh, slowly because there's so much in here. And if you're remembering from last week, this will be, I broke it down into this chapter into seven sections. This will be section five. Gave you four last week. We're going to do five today. We'll, this all we'll probably get through today, but I, I think it'll help you. Verse 17 says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early 
shall find me. Now, Father, help us today and bless us as we come to your word. We love you. We thank you for all the things that you do for us and that you've given us. We thank you for the 11 good years that we've had here and, and the many, many people that you've brought our way that, that make this ministry what it is, the men and the women who love you and love the Word of God, who stand side by side with me and, and laboring in this vineyard that you've given us here. And Lord, we just thank you for all the young, fresh blood that we have of young men and young ladies and young couples to, <clears throat> that want to ensure that this church goes forward until Jesus comes back. And Lord, bless us today. Give us, uh, Lord, what you have for us, and, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in the Bible, it's very clear that uh, God loves everybody that's his children. I understand that. Uh, if you're saved and you're God's child, then God loves you. <clears throat> uh, yet, it's also clear that even though God loves all of his children, saved children, he loves some of them and has a deeper relationship and a love with some of them than he does with others. Now, let me start out by saying this. It's not because, when that happens, it's not because God doesn't want to have that deep relationship with you. To the contrary, it's the fact that you don't want to have that deep relationship with him. You want God in your life, but you kind of keep him at arm's length, so to speak. You want God in your life, but he's somebody who you don't uh, really want in all of your life. And, and that's just the way that it works. And that's why there are some people who have a, a, a deeper relationship with the Lord than, than other people. And, then that's, and that's hard for most Christians to grasp today. Uh, it's foreign uh, to them because <clears throat> they have really no knowledge of God of what it takes to really love the Lord. And it's, love is a cheap word today. And uh, <clears throat> you see it in marriages, you see it in family. And one of the fundamental principles about true love is love has to be associated with a true action. And we see that that's not true in Christianity. We see a lot of people claim to love God, but they see no action based on that love. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the Apostle John. And uh, he's one of my favorite characters to study in the Bible. <clears throat> and I showed you how that John out of all the 12 apostles, had a closer relationship and a deeper relationship with Christ than the other 12 did. It's one of the most amazing studies. In fact, in my mind, I've always looked at it as a model of what Christianity probably is. You take any 12 Christians you find today, probably one of them will not be unsaved. In our study, that would be Judas. He was the phony. Then you're going to find of the 11 left, <coughs> there was three of those apostles who in studying the Bible, we would call the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. If you would go through the Bible, you would find that when all the major events, like the Mount of Transfiguration, the rising of Jairus' daughter, uh, the major events in the New Testament, you'll find that, that those three men are there, and I don't know where the rest of them are at, but they're not there. They make, in our study, the inner circle. They experience greater things than the rest of the disciples did, they saw the, the power of God to a greater degree and even experienced to a greater degree. But even of the inner three, there's only one who goes all the way, and that is the Apostle John. When Christ is crucified, we know Peter denies him. James is nowhere to be found. It's John who goes the distance. And uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I told you how that John writes the five wisdom books for the New Testament 
like you have five wisdom books for the Old Testament, and I remember giving them to you. One of the books he writes is the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is the greatest book in the Bible that defines for you how you have to love God. And it's so, it's so powerful that every commentator I ever read on the, on the epistle of 1 John will always tell you that the theme of 1 John is love. And you'll get that in almost every book that you read or every sermon that you hear. They'll start out by saying that, that the theme of this book is love. I've never really understood that other than the fact that most guys don't really study the books of the Bible before they preach them. They get an idea from somebody else or read this and that and go with it. They never really base their messages on it. I don't know how a guy could say that the theme of 1 John is love when it's only got five chapters in it, and they're short chapters. Twenty-seven times in five chapters, you don't find the word love. You find the word to know, knowing. And the great theme of 1 John is not loving God. The great theme of 1 John is knowing God because this is what happens with Christians today. We try to love God without even knowing God. We fall into love with people today. And because we never take the time to, to know that person we fall in love with, then it doesn't last. And with God, it's the same way. You'll come to a church service and you'll hear some fiery sermon or you'll hear some song that, that moves your emotions and you'll, you'll make an emotional decision to, to trust Christ and be, uh, be saved, you know. And I'm not saying you were or you weren't, honestly. I'm just saying that's what you do. But because you never get into a process where you learn to know God, someplace along the line you fall out of love with God just like you fell in love with God. Real love takes the basis of knowing. And that's what John represents for us. It's an incredible study. Now, I go, God loves all of his children. I understand that. But he develops a special relationship with those who develop a special relationship with him. A couple of New Year's Eves ago, probably three or four or five by now, I can't remember when, I, I walked you through the book of Song of Solomon, almost verse by verse, and I showed you, it's in book back there now, and I showed you how that, that uh, the book of Song of Solomon shows us, gives us exactly the format that we are to have to follow to develop a relationship with God. And as I said, it's not based on that, that God chooses this person to have a close relationship with and this person not to. It's not about that. God wants to have an intimate, personal, one-on-one relationship uh, in the sense of fellowship with every believer that's his child. The problem is not God. The problem is we don't want that. We don't want to go do what we've got to do. We'd rather spread ourselves out in all that we do instead of giving everything to the Lord. I've talked to people all my life that if you would ask them, do you love God? Oh, I love God. And I sometimes, just to be coy or cute, if I know the person, <clears throat> I won't do it to a stranger, but I'll ask them, well, that's great. Name me the seven things in the Bible that God loves. I mean, if you love him, you ought to know what he loves. Most of them don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. You know, it, it, consider that it would be hard, even with your own child, it would be hard to love your own child if you never saw them in your house. You never spoke to them except maybe once or twice a year. 
You develop no real relationship with them. And when they do call you on the phone, they want something from you. Dad, send me some money or I need this or I need that. We need to rent money. If you were an honest parent, I think you'd feel somewhat used and abused. And if you were totally honest, I think you would say that the relationship probably is certainly one-sided. I mean, you would love them, but you could never develop that into the real personal relationship that probably every parent desires to have with their child. You see, love is an incredible thing in the Bible. Now, if that child wanted to be by your side in everything that you did, only wanted to talk and have and hang out with you. That wherever you go, they want to go be with you. They want to be like you in everything that you do. I think, again, if you're honest, you'd say that that would develop into a more incredibly deep relationship and love uh, than the first illustration. You see, love to work has to flow both ways. It can't be up here God loving you and me beyond all belief and you holding God back at arm's length. God will love you, but he won't love you to the degree. And, of course, the examples are very numerous in the Bible. And it's the same way with God. Some of his children, they never come to his house, this being his house. Or when they do, they hit once a month or once every three months or whenever it's convenient for them. They're like the child we talked about. They never talk to him. They never go through the day telling God how much they love him. You never read and cherish the 66 love letters that he wrote to you. You never sit down over a meal and before you bury your face in it, stop and take time to thank the one who provided it all for you. We use him, we take all that he wants to give us, and we give nothing back. And then we talk about how much we love him. Now, in the Bible, there's two men, and I'm not going to get into this, but you can study it on your own, and some of you probably already have. In the Bible, there's two men that illustrate uh, this uh, view of God loving someone with a deeper relationship, and uh, it really makes, they really make the case. There, I would call them the two standards for, for loving God. One of them, obviously, in the Old Testament is David. Of all of the kings of the nation of Israel, do you know that God always compares every king that Israel had back to one king, David? And David, sure, when he wasn't perfect, and David had his problem. But what David did have that overrode, over, that overrode all of the issues in his life, because we're all going to have issues, is he loved God and he loved his word. At the end of the day, in Acts chapter 13, God said that he was a man after my own heart. The second one is the apostle John that we've just talked about. And both of them center around the word of God. So you're going to see the first part of this verse really talks about that God wants to have a relationship with you and me. He wants to have that love relationship with us. But it's us that do not want to have it with him. And then he gets into the last part of the verse. And here really is the heart of our message today. Those that seek me early shall find me. Now, I want to tell you before I get into this that this is probably one of the most profound places anywhere in the Scriptures. The depth of this goes right along with the depth of Proverbs chapter 8. 
And yet, just like most of things that are deep in the Bible, this is probably one of the most misapplied verses in all the Bible, uh, and you hear it all the time used wrongly. And the concept of seeking God early. I've heard many, many preachers say that, that, that and take that verse, and this is all they could get out of it, was the fact that you had to get up early in the morning and start your day with God. That, you know, you ought to start your day with God in the morning, you know, 4 or 5 a.m., 6 to 7 a.m., and that'll, that'll, that'll make you spiritual because the verse said, if you seek me early, you shall find me. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't read your Bible in the morning to get your day started. I'm certainly not suggesting that you don't. I think you probably should. That's a good thing. Or pray in the morning to jumpstart your day to get you going. I, I'm all for it. Uh, I, I get to spend probably before my day gets up and moving, I get to spend a couple of hours every morning just getting into the Bible, and, and I really enjoy it, and I think it sets the tone for, for the whole thing that you do. I, I, I get it. I get it. But the truth of the matter is this. Biblically, God's day doesn't start in the morning. Now, maybe our day starts in the morning, but if you remember your Bible back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible says that God's day begins at night. The evening and the morning were the first day. It was the evening and the morning were the second day. You see, our day starts in the morning, but God's day starts in the evening. And Job takes it one step further where Job says, for God, in Job chapter 33, verses 14, 15, and 16, he says, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, where deep sleep falleth upon men in slumberings upon their bed. Then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instructions. Now, the verse says that, that uh, God's day begins at night. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get up in the morning and get into the Word of God and pray. I think that's great. But what the Bible says is if you're talking about when God's day starts and you want to make that verse mean that seek God early, then you got to do it at night. Because the Bible teaches that the last thing you put into your mind before you fall asleep. And sleep in the Bible is an incredible thing. Sleep in the Bible is the only time where you and I, where your mind, you're not in control of anything. You're out of control. You're out. It's the closest you ever come to to diet. And when you sleep at night, you're not conscious of anything. And the Bible says your body goes down to a, a minimum. This is why you should not eat before you go to bed, because then your body works all night. And this is why you wake up in the morning and you don't feel rest, because while you were sleeping, your body was trying to work on nine cheeseburgers and 16 fries and, and all the things that we put in there before we went to sleep. In fact... You should not eat at night before you go to bed, and the first meal you should have is breakfast, which is simply break the fast of you not having anything to eat all night. And during that time, God's Spirit takes the last thing you put in in your Bible, in your mind, and structures your next day. That's how it works in the Bible. But how many people do that? Now, that's a good thing, but I'm going to tell you, the verse is not even talking about that. I'll just throw that in there to explain that it ain't about how early you get up. But in our text, it's even more than that. It's talking about, and this is why I'm glad you children are here today, and I'm glad this is why I had the camp thing going, and this is why I'm glad your parents are here this morning. Because it's talking about man, you and me, seeking God early in life and finding him before the world in sin descends on us. 
And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, the wisest man that ever lived said, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. The principle is really simple. The longer you wait to get saved, the harder it will be for you to get saved. You get saved while you're still tender to God. Not after the world has hardened you toward God, and the world will simply harden you toward God. Now, the Bible says in that verse, those that seek me early shall find me. And I want to talk this morning about that concept. Giving your child every advantage as a parent. Now, our church is in a great situation. If you've been around most churches, you find that most churches, the average age is about 60, 70, or 80, and you don't find any young couples. Our church is just the opposite. 80% of, of you are, uh, are young couples married with kids or singles that are going to get married with kids. And the baby right around here is, uh, uh, you know, unbelievable. And uh, it's a thing where uh, this is the, the, the longevity of our church just by what God has given us, the lifeblood. And that's why I'll, expare, I'll, I'll spare no expenses when it comes to the kids going to camp or putting, investing my life into the young couples or the young singles that want to learn and want to grow. Because the greatest aspect of our church is that 20 to 30 to 40 crowd. The older men and women, the Bible talks about your place. It talks about the older women teaching the younger women and the men being the examples and helping the young guys along. Everybody's got their place. But let's face it, I'm 64 years old. I, 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 got more side, I got more time on the other side than I got on the, what's coming up. You guys got it all coming up for you. My job now is to get you ready to take over everything that God is doing and, and, at a time when it's someplace down the line that uh, this church will have to go on. And it'll have to go on without me. This verse is for you in helping your child find God early in life. Now, we all like guarantees. Salvation is 100% guaranteed. And you know, there's not many guarantees in life. Salvation is 100% guaranteed. But I also want to give you along with that, there is a, for you young couples here, that there is 100% guarantee in that Bible that your child will become everything that God wants them to be. There's 100% guarantee. I've had parents all the time, you know, think about having kids or, or, and they say, or couples having kids and they'll say, well, you know what? I really, with the world the way it is, I don't know if I want to bring kids into this world. Well, if your mom and dad would have felt that way in their world, world worst generation, you wouldn't even be here. The bottom line is you can't look at life that way because that Bible's got some guarantees in it. And I want to talk to you out of Proverbs chapter 8 how you can guarantee 100% your child will be everything that God wants it to be Amen. without any fears or reservations. I'm not saying you won't go through some struggles. I'm not saying you won't have some issues. I'm saying the guarantee will come through for you. Amen. It's just that simple. And this will be a 100% guarantee that, will, that they will be all that God wants them to be. Now, the Bible's very clear in the fact that we train our children. 
Proverbs 22, 6 says, familiar verse. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a great verse. Proverbs 29, verses 17 and 18 says, Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, verse 18 you hear all the time pastors using about putting a vision out for the church. And that's 100% correct in doing that. But if you look at the context, the, the context, even though I can use that as a pastor to lay out a vision of where we're going, the context is parents laying out a vision for their children, providing a vision of the life with God for your child, providing a vision for your child to find God early. When the Bible says, though that seek me early shall find me, let me just start by saying this. That responsibility lies with the parent, the Christian mom and dad, to put this process in place for your child that they have the ability to seek God early. And you do it. This is what I want to talk to you about based on Proverbs 8 here, verse 17. Finding God early. Seeking him early and finding him for your child. It's based on five basic stages that your child goes through. And, uh, and, and crazy enough, it's the same five stages that a person goes through when they get saved. Only in an adult situation. But we'll, we, we're not going to focus on that today. We want to focus on what we've got here. Now... I'm going to give you some key principles here that I want you young parents to remember. And I'll tell you when they are. I have them circled in red in mine, so I won't forget them. And I will draw your attention in case you want to zone off for a while. I'll bring you back for each principle. Because the truth of the matter is, if you just get home with these principles, you'll be a lot farther than you probably are right now. But I hope you'll learn, stay for all of it and stay in your mind for all of it. Now... I want to talk about these because, as I said earlier, our children is the most important commodity we have. And I want to say this, as a mom and dad, that your children and your family are the most important commodity that you have. And I'll talk about that more as we come down through this. Now, these five things you're going to add to them to your child as they come through these areas of life as they grow up. Uh, you're going to, they're going to build uh, on the former one and add the new one until they come to a complete a biblical training a life in their life that they completely understand and they have found the Lord. That's the way it works. And as I said, it's the same way with an adult Christian. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 5 says that after you and I get saved, there's some things that we need to add to our faith. Remember that verse? In other words, it didn't just get saved and move on now and go. After you get saved, there's things that you add to your faith. And he lists seven things in the passage there that after we get saved, we add to our faith as building blocks to get us moving down the line. Well, when you have your child and that child begins to grow, these are the five building blocks that you want to understand and you want to put in their life. The five stages of getting your child to the point of seeking Christ early. And you as a parent have to add these to your life. Now, quickly, I'm going to go through five, and then I'm going to come back and talk about them so you can get them out. First stage is going to be what we call the discipline stage. 
The second stage is going to be what we call the relationship stage. You don't have to worry about getting them down now because we're going to come through them one at a time. The third one is going to be the fellowship stage. The fourth one is going to be the responsibility stage. And the fifth one is going to be the ministry stage. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this. There's many variables in training children. Not every child is the same. Not every child is alike. Children in your own family, they're all going to be different. Uh, They don't always mature at the same rate as the person sitting next to them. Not all children are the same in character and development. And so I take that in, and you have to understand, the ages that I'm going to give you from this are certainly going to vary some, so you don't want to lock into that. But what you want to see and understand here, that these are the five fundamental building blocks to fulfill verse 17 of your child finding the Lord early. And it's up to each parent on an individual basis to know your child, understand your child, and based on the many other principles and factors that's found in the Bible, to be able to apply these things as they grow. Now, let's talk about these. The first stage is going to be the, the discipline stage. And this will be approximately six months up to maybe four or five years of age. And it'll vary. But I want to say this. Without a doubt, this one is the most important of the, fundament, uh, of the fundamental stages. This is number one. Because in life, discipline. Discipline will develop itself into self-discipline. We've all seen kids in their 20s and their 18s and their 19s that are worthless. We've all seen kids who start something and finish nothing. We've all seen kids that they try to get to church and they can't make it three weeks in a row. We've all seen people down the line that struggle with the basic, fundamental, elementary structures of life. Now, why is that? What happened? Why is that? And it goes back to the fact that when discipline is instilled in your child, in time it will multiply and develop itself into self-discipline. And you have to have those two aspects in your life. Discipline and self-discipline is absolutely crucial It forms the basis of everything in life. If you want to take life down to its lowest common denominator, life is nothing more than a fundamental structure based on discipline. Following the rules. You see it in everything in a kid's life. When he goes to school, there's rules. When he goes to elementary school, there's rules. When he goes to high school, there's rules. When he breaks out in life, there's rules. And when a parent doesn't follow that thing first, I'm going to tell you something. A child, by the time they're four and five years old, will have developed the character traits that they will follow for the rest of their lives. You're not going to build any character after four or five. You're only going to build on what you already built. Nothing more. This stage is about setting boundaries. This stage is about understanding right from wrong, limitations. Now, here's your first principle you want to get down. I got this marked in red. Big red. In this stage, mom and dad, two things fundamentally happen. In this stage... You will train your child 
or your child will train you. You'll now at this stage condition them to respond to you or they will condition you to respond to them. And you see it all the time. I'm not going to tell you one more time. Let me ask you a question. How many times would you like to tell them to do something before they do it? How about the first time? And I've seen parents stand there and say, Bobby, I'm not going to tell you. This is my mother. I'm not going to tell you one more time. I already knew I had five more times coming. This is the fundamental place where it begins to break down. At four or five. This is where you either condition them or they condition you. This is where you begin to train them or they begin to train you. It's just that simple. This is where the model of parents, good or bad, will take root. And then you may not see it for 10 years, but it will manifest itself someplace many years later. Now, here's the second principle you want to get. We talked about where there is no vision, the people perish. And we talked about giving your child a vision of a life with God. But the thing you need to understand that parenting is not about giving your child a vision or a plan. Parenting is about you and your husband modeling the vision of the plan. Not giving it to them, modeling it for them. That's the key. That's the key. I had a friend of mine a while back who had a beautiful female German shepherd. And uh, she was uh, pregnant with a litter of puppies. And she got out one day and got hit with a car. And uh, broke, broke both of her back legs, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and uh, she, uh, she didn't lose the puppies. And they did what they could do for her. But because of the condition she was in, not to be able to lose the puppies, uh, they couldn't do everything the way they wanted to do it. So that dog, uh, beautiful German shepherd, uh, walked with a very, very prominent uh, hip problem and, 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 limped and limped and drug one leg um, all the time that he had the dog. Well, she had the litter of puppies. And the litter of puppies were the cutest little thing in her life. And after about six to eight weeks, the guy that had him, my friend, got concerned because all the puppies were limping and dragging their leg. He thought something in the accident had, had hurt the puppies. He took them all to the vet, and the vet examined them. They were fine. What the vet told him was that those dogs are learning to walk with a limp because the parent dog walks with a limp. Oh, Do you get what I'm saying? Amen, brother. Roof, roof. Do you get it? Amen. Now, here's the next thing you want to get. Discipline forms the basic gateway for discipleship. Most parents don't even see it. They don't even understand that this stage early on is doing a lot of things. And what it's doing is it's setting the stage for your child to be discipled and become a disciple down the line because the word disciple or discipleship is the root word off of discipline. Training them in discipline then will ensure and guarantee they'll be a candidate for discipleship down the road. 
because you're teaching the fundamental concept of discipleship is simply discipline and self-discipline. I, I, I've been in this business for a few years. I've seen parents all my life lose their child, lose all of their children, and all they can do, all the farther they can go is to blame it on somebody else or something else. And I've heard it all. I mean, they make excuses for their child. In one case, it'll be, I've seen parents that were in churches all their life. They're saved people, and they're good people. But they lose all of their children. I've seen the other case where parents have lived an open, sinful lifestyle, and they were saved. And at some point in their life, they get right with God. Praise the Lord. But now they reap their own sin in the lives of their children. And you talk about the principle I gave you of short-term and long-term. Now, don't look so, this is the next thing you want to get down here. Don't look so despondent about that because there is a way to handle that. I don't know of any situation you get into in life, even if it's your fault, that God doesn't give you a way out. Now, the longer you wait, the harder it is to get out. And there may be some times where you will never turn the situation around, but at least you'll be able to do right with the situation. But there is a way to handle that in, mo- in both cases. But most parents will never do it. Just like there's these stages that you go through in your child, you got in the Bible five stages that you go through to recover a child. But parents won't do it. It's too easy to blame it on somebody else. It's too easy not to take the responsibility for it because it's embarrassing. Well, I've been in church all my life. Well, my husband's a deacon. Or my husband's a pastor. Well, I teach Bible study. I do this. I do that. How is it going to look? Well, don't worry about how it looks now. Worry about how it's going to look at the judgment seat of Christ. I've had parents say to me, well, I didn't raise my kid that way. Depending on how well I know and what mood I'm in, sometimes I'll say, well, then who raised them if you didn't? You see, you think because you don't drink and your kid turns out to be a drunk that somebody else taught them that. That's, that's, that's a legitimate thing to think, wouldn't it be? You think because you don't do drugs and your kid winds up being a dopehead, somebody else must have taught him that. That's the mindset. That's the mindset. Uh, I've known couples that their kids turned out to be homosexuals or lesbians. And the, and the parents were straight as an arrow when it come to that aspect of their lives. And they get the aspect that, that who did this to my child? You did. And the only qualification that is true in what the guy said, basically, though you were right in one aspect, you didn't raise them that way, but you trained them that way. By not putting the fundamental things in. See, you're looking at, there'll be certain things that they do. When that discipline stage breaks down, Katie barred the door, it's open, they'll get into everything. And just because you didn't do it, society was a lot different now than it was then. And it'll always be worse than anything that we did. Discipline is the number one aspect that needs to be instilled and enforced in a child's life. Your failure at six months to four or five 
will definitely show up between 15 and 20. I deal all the time and have all for many, many years with kids that are, you know, 18, 19, 20, mostly 20, 21, 22. You know, they're completely out in the world. Maybe they're saved, maybe they're not. You couldn't tell it. There's no stitch of character in it. And I've had parents all the time say, well, do this, help my child, help my child. And I've had to tell them, you know what? I gave it the best shot I could, but I couldn't do it. Now, this is going to hurt, but you know why I couldn't do it? Because I couldn't do, I couldn't undo what you did for 22 years. I used to do electrical work, and I went into this place one time, and a woman wanted a ceiling fan that was, the ceiling was, might have to be 100 feet high. When we looked in the field there, it was nothing but studs going all the way through, nowhere to run the wire. She insisted upon it. She says, you're an electrician. I said, ma'am, I'm an electrician, but I'm not a magician. After 20, 22 years of training them one way, you expect somebody to come in now and flip the switch? People lose sight of the fact. Now the second one will be the relationship stage. And this will be 5 to 12 approximately. Now in our second one, we see the second aspect of development in your children to seek God early. Because that's what the verse says. This will be the building of relationship through communication and meaningful dialogue. Now at this stage and age, you can begin to talk and communicate with a child on a more deeper level as they mature. Now you begin to communicate with them through life's experiences they're beginning to encounter. They go to school, so there'll be things that come up that you can talk about at school. They'll have friends that they meet that you can dialogue and talk about those friends. There'll be activities that they get involved in, in school and in church. And you can now talk about those, use those things. And obviously, as any child, there'll be discipline issues that come up. Things that, have to, that you have to deal with, problem areas. And, and now you have the ability. You have the ability to, uh, to be able to talk with them and develop a relationship with them through the dialogue. Now, here's where you begin to get some things done with them in the Bible. Here's where you begin to go through discipleship one with them, and maybe discipleship two. Here's where you begin to use the Bible as a textbook for life, and you begin to instill in them principles. And the Bible, as the Bible says in the book of Galatians, that the Bible becomes our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. Building on the first level that you already build on. We saw this stage a while back in Proverbs. I don't know if you remember it or not, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, where the Bible says, My son, keep thy father's commandments and forsake not the law of thy mother. And I showed you how that that's a perfect picture of what we have today. And it's a perfect picture of a family. Uh, in the context that he's talking about there, it's talking about father is the spiritual leader, or he's supposed to be. And he lays down the law, the commandments, the way it's going to be. The mother, who's a helpmeet, takes the law that the father lays down, and she enforces it with the children. She's the one that holds the line and enforces what the father says, this is the way it's got to be. They don't work at cross-purposes with each other. And this is what you see a lot of kids doing. A lot of kids will come in and say, hey, can I go do here? And the mom will say, go ask your father. And so he'll go to the father and say, hey, uh, can I go here? And he'll say, ask your mother. She says, I already did. She said it was all right with her. It just it was all right with you. See? They're not together. 
And when you're not together as a husband and a wife, your kids play you. And they play you better than you ever thought. I mean, Stravinsky or Padaninsky could never play his instrument as good as your children can play you. You know why? Because in the first stage, you gave it over to them. And now it's, it's moving along, man, moving along. And this is where you teach your child the importance. Here it comes. Here's the next thing you want to get down. In this one, this is where you now, at this age, teach your children the importance of going to church. You know why some parents' kids wouldn't go to church this morning, don't go anywhere, make every excuse in the world not to be in church? Because they never got this fundamental teaching when they're at that point in their life, and church is no more important to them than it is to you. Because that verse says that the father lays down the commandments, and the mother enforces the commandments. Okay, let's put it into a church context. Here's the father's commandment. This church is made up of Men and women who are part of the what? Bride of Christ. And we're the female part. You know what the job of this church is? Taking the commandments of the Father and us as the bride of Christ, enforcing them. You teach that principle to your child when they're at that age, you won't have a problem getting to church. You know why? Because you have already taught them the principle. That's how it works. That's how it works. Now, in this stage, the relationship stage, here's where you... Absolutely guarantee. You want the guarantee? Here it is. It's in this stage, if you do the other ones, and you've done the first one, that you get your guarantee. Your guarantee that no one, no teacher, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, nobody or nothing will ever have more influence over your child than you unless you allow them to. Now, I'm not saying you won't have some issues because kids are kids. You will. But what I am saying is that when you build this stage of your relationship with your child, your relationship with them, when it's done right, based on the principles of the Word of God, will always be the number one thing in their life that they want more than anything else in life. And the very thought of somebody coming out and taking that from them and taking them out of that little world is more than they can comprehend, even when they're 20 or 30. Now, here's the next thing I want you to get. Here's what your child really wants. And most parents can never get here because they're selfish. It's all about them and the kids are just kids running around. They don't look at the depth of the destruction they're doing in their lives. Here's what a child wants. Your child wants a safe, warm, open, loving environment that they absolutely feel 100% secure in. They want to see mom and dad in openly affection and love, displaying that love, talking about that love in the family. They want to see and feel the warmth and the condition of everything in that family that is conducive to them being in a situation that they don't ever want to leave. They don't want to see mom and dad fighting back and forth. They don't want to hear mom and dad cussing each other out. They don't want to hear mom and dad get down to a knockdown drag out and call each other dirty names. They don't want to hear that. That breaks the security. That breaks it. It's no wonder some kids cannot wait to get out of the family. And you know what happens? They hook back up with somebody like they just left. 
I've had girls tell me I left and hated my father because he did this, he did that, he did that, and I hated my father. You know what happened, Bob? I went out and got out of my family, got away from my father. You know what I did? I married somebody just like my father. You know why she did that? Because she was trained to do that. That's why. That child should never want to leave the fellowship of that family. That child, no matter who says what to them, should always look back at dad and find out if that person is really telling the truth because dad is the only one I really know I can trust. Now, that's just the way a church should be. See the parallels? One big, loving, happy family. One big, warm, slimy, solidified, kumbaya Hold hands around the fireplace. Just a warm, secure place that you don't ever want to get out of fellowship of church and leave church and not have a church because church is the only thing you got in this cold, dark, dirty world that makes you feel what God wants you to feel. Now, what's that say for a person who doesn't want that? It calls himself a Christian. I'll let you answer that one. Ministering to each other and edifying each other and keeping each other, oh, here comes the dirty word, accountable. Third stage, 13 through 16, approximately. This will be the fellowship stage. Now, this is an important stage, for this is a transitional stage of the child development to find God early in life. If you've done your job and you've been a parent that's brought them up through these stages, when you hit this one, now you're in a transitional stage. This one goes from, from early teens up to mid-teens or maybe even late teens. And this is where somewhere in number two or number three around here, your child hit the age of accountability. And you want them to Christ. And you'll need to understand how to respond to that, how to look for that. I, I see tragedies all the time. I see tragedies all the time where a kid has parents who claim to be Christian. They don't go to church anywhere, or where they do, they don't go very often, and they got their own worldly problems, and they get their little pride where they think that they're right with God and love God and all this stuff. And you know what? The devil allows them to do that, and they may be fine. It's the kid that winds up dying and going to hell. I've seen those little kids go to dad and say, Dad, I think I need to get saved. Go talk to your mother. Well, Mommy, I think I need to get saved. Go talk to your dad. And you know what? The kid just gives up. Now is when in this fellowship stage the parents begin to shift. The relationship that they have with their child to their child's relationship to Christ in a personal way. If a parent's paying attention, he knows that now that up to this point in that kid's life, good or bad, all that that kid understands about God is what he's seen in the model of mom and dad. And in some cases, it's really good. In some cases, it's horrendous. But now the parent understands that he has to, he has to, he has to take that child and transfer that child's fellowship and relationship to Christ. And once that kid gets saved, he begins the process of transition to do that. He begins to shift these things from them to God. Up to this point, as I said, all they've known of God is what they've seen from the model of mom and dad. 
Now is when they begin to develop their own relationship, their own fellowship with God. And you see this exact thing in our church. Our church is geared along these lines. You come here on Sunday morning when you look at the prayer groups, you know what? You see these little girls over here? They're right in this age group. They're having their own time in their own prayer group. You see the guys doing it, having their own prayer group. They get their stuff from Bob just like the, Bob gives to the other folks. You know what they're doing? They're, they're building their own prayer groups. They're taking responsibility for them. They're, they're building their own devotions. They're, they're, they're their own time in the Bible. They're in that early part of their life. But already through the families in the church, they're seeing that they need to take responsibility and you're seeing them step up at 13 and 14. I'm not saying they're still not kids. They still don't fight with their brothers and sisters and they still don't like to sleep with their teddy bear. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in this stage, you're beginning to see that thing shift and that's the way it's supposed to go. Job of the church, as I've said it many, many times, is nothing more than to reinforce these principles that you ought to be putting into your children's lives. Well, the fourth stage. This will be ages 16 to 19. And this is called the responsibility stage. Now, you want to write what I'm about to say down here because you want to get this one. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter whatever the case may be, when you haven't done the first three and you just played around with it, This is where, as the old saying goes, your chickens come home to roost. No longer can you hide it. You see, when their kids growing up and they're rebellious and all that, and you start to see the warning signs, but you don't do anything about it, you can hide it. You can shove it under the thing. Your kid causes problems in the nursery. Not that your kids do, but I'm just saying. Your kids cause problems in the nursery, and the nursery workers say, well, that kid's out of control. And, uh, you know, and if somebody tries to tell you, it's the nursery worker's fault. See, not my kid. Where is your kid? Well, he's burning down the building next door, but that's not his fault either. Okay? That's, that's where it goes. But you can't hide it at this stage anymore. Now it's open rebellion. Now they're not only rebelling against the people that they've been around out here. Now it comes home and roost in the home. And now the rebellion is there because at this stage, it'll be right here. Now that this age that they begin to challenge the authority of mom and dad and and accepting any responsibility. And when your first three have not been in place, you will lose your child in most cases in this spot right here. This will be the final deal. This will be the final deal. And don't think just because your child still lives in your home that you have them. Look, the guy driving down the road one time, and he he told his little boy in the front seat, and he buckled him all in. The kid loved to stand up, and he stood up in the front seat because he can see better. Dad said, sit down. He said, I don't want to sit down. Dad said, I said, sit down. He said, I don't want to sit down. He said, I'm telling you, sit down. The kid said, I don't want to sit down. And Dad took him and cracked him and put him down that seat and said, now don't move. kid looked up and said, I may be sitting in the car, but I'm standing in my mind. You don't have them. You have a body. You have nothing, nothing, nothing of substance with them. You have no spiritual relationship. You go your way, they go theirs. There's no loving talk about God in the Bible. There's always consternation. There's always problem. There's always some issue. It'll always be somebody else's fault for them. They'll never take responsibility because you never took responsibility for them and you passed it on and it was always somebody else's problem. You've trained them well. 
And now the chickens come home. This is where parents now have to tighten the reins, so to speak. And you hear about this all the time. Put demands on their children. Limitations on where they go and who they go with. Now you got to have curfews. Now you got your daughter comes down to go out, in a, or out with somebody and you say, ah, you go back up. And go, what time are they coming? Well, they're not going to be here for 15 minutes. Good. Go back and change your cloak. You're not wearing that out. Oh, yes, I am. No, you're not. This is where it starts. This will always, this age will always bring the conflict of rebellion. Here's another thing you want to write down. If you didn't instill them in them the bounds and enforce them in the first, second, and third stage, you're dreaming if you think you can do it now. This is the rebellious stage. And you know why it's a rebellious stage? You know why you can't instill anything in them? And you know why they're, re- they're rebellious toward you? I'll just give you this free. Because they've seen your rebellion toward God. Amen. And you were in church every Sunday. You were a pastor. You were a deacon. You taught Sunday school. But when it came to the fundamental discipline structure found in these five things, they were nowhere to be found. And so now they look at it and they, their rebellion is based on your rebellion. Now, biblically speaking... In this fourth stage, you ought to be giving them more responsibility and latitude, not less, if things are done right. If things, if you've done your thing right, I'm not saying you just turn them loose to the world, but what I'm saying is when they get to this stage, if you've done the other, you don't have to put curfews on them. You don't have to tell them who they can be with and who they can't. They'll come to you and ask. At this stage, you've built the, you've instilled the things in them. They're, they're, they should, they're more responsible now. They're ready to take more responsibility because you have put in their lives now and trained them for what? 18, 19, 20 years? How to find God early and guess what? They found him. And they built the discipline in their life. They built the relationship in their life. They built their fellowship in their life. And now the responsibility is there. You work together with your child in a common cause. And that common cause is Christ. You're now the team. You work together. And you've gotten them ready in this stage, this responsibility stage, because the next stage, they're going to step out on their own and embrace the world without you. And what you've done to guarantee that they'll have it when they get there is you help them find God early because the Bible says, those that seek him early shall find him. The last stage, the fifth stage, 20 years through life. I didn't say 20 years to life, that's marriage. (laughs) With no parole. The fifth stage is the ministry stage. Now it's come full circle. Now people look at a church, any church, and, you know, it conjures up all kinds of things in people's minds. People have, everybody has their own opinion of what a church is or what it should be. And I, I get that. I understand that. And everybody looks at churches, you know, and gets it for, for what the, it is. And I understand. But in reality, from a Bible standpoint, the job of the church is a very simple one. It's simply reproducing. It's simply reproducing what we have in the lives of others. That's all it is. That's all this church fundamentally is at the end of the day. 
We may have a lot of things going on. We may do a lot of thousand other things out there that, that you would never see that or think about that. But everything has a means to an end. And the bottom line in this church, any church, is nothing more than reproducing ourselves in others for the aspect of ministry. I've understood that from day one when we started our church. And this is why in our church, I've, I've always set the bar high. I've always required more people who wanted to be uh, in ministry than people who just were normal people. I, I always set the bar high because I know it takes a higher standard to be able to do that. And, if you, and it, it's just the way it works. If, if you want to, and it, this is true of any church. I don't care where you go, anybody across the board. If you want to see the level of any pastor's spiritual walk with God, in any church on this planet, you just look at two things. You look at two things. The first thing you look at is the spiritual level of his church. The second thing you look at is the spiritual level of his family. And that is across the board. Because those two fundamental things are what it's all about. His church and his family will be exactly what he is, good or bad. If he loves the, if he loves the ministry they'll love the ministry. If he loves the Bible, they'll love the Bible. If he, if he has a love for people, they'll develop a love for people. If he has a, a passion to teach the Bible and help people through problems, they'll have a passion to help people through it. It's the way that it works. And just as it works that way in a, fa- in, in a church, it's the same way with parenting, same way with your family. Your family, as your children grow up, your family will simply be spiritually what you are spiritually. And this is why so many parents who have older kids who lose their children, they have such a hard time with that. And I get it. I understand. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. But this is why we're in a rush to blame it on somebody else, to blame our problems on somebody else. We'll never take personal responsibility for any of our failures. And because of that, it's always going to be somebody else, and preachers do the exact same thing. I've known preachers that every problem they have in their church is somebody else's fault. It's this family, or it's this person, it's that person. I've told you before, everything rises and falls on leadership. And in a church, the leadership, the buck stops with the pastor. And in a family, the buck stops with the father. And it's just that simple. He lays down the commandments, and the wife enforces them. But you've all seen families where the father couldn't lay down it because the wife was either a busybody that had her nose in everybody else's business, going around yapping about everything to everybody, or she ran the family. And the constant fight was back and forth, not over where do the kids go or where they don't go. The constant fight was, I'm in charge today. No, you're not. Okay, honey, you can be. Families ministering together. The only people on this planet, kids... The only people on this planet that you are 100% guaranteed to win to Christ and raise to keep God's heritage going in the ministry is your family. Now, you need to stop and think about that for a moment. We work with a lot of people. I work with tons of people. I'm in people's lives and their worlds and their problems all week long, all day long. But you know what? I understand one thing in my mind. I do the best I can, I do what I can, but at the end of the day, I realize that I only have one group that I am guaranteed to get to do right and to follow God and be in ministry and do everything, only one, and that's my family. Everybody else is optional because I don't have total control over them. 
You only have total control over one aspect in your life. You may get lots of people saved. You may turn a lot of people out. Some of you gals and some of you guys are phenomenal in discipling people and bringing them up in the Bible and turning them back into leadership in our church. I love it. I appreciate it. It's what we do. But you know as well as I do, for every five you get it, make it, you get 15 that don't. You know why? There's no guarantee there. There's just a lot of hard sweat, blood, and tears and work there, but there's no guarantee. I'm going to tell you where you got the guarantee. It's with your family. That's the only guarantee you have. You have a guarantee that if you do what's right with them, then God will bring them through and keep that heritage of your family going, a family ministering together. Because that's only the real total responsibility we have. Oh, we cry out like we talked about a couple of weeks ago in those five areas and put the word of God out. And I know I'm responsible for preaching the truth. I get it to everybody, but I only have total control over my family. And so do you. If my family fails, I'll never blame it on somebody else. It'll be my failure. And if your family fails or has failed, even though there's five steps to recover them that you may not want to do, at the end of the day, you own it. No other way to deal with it. And that's not popular today. And this is why the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, if a man doesn't have his family under control, biblically, he has no place in pastoring or, or leadership in the church or teaching people the Bible. Because these fundamental five things that we've looked at are the absolutely five fundamental things that you have in a church. From teaching your family, your kids how to be discipled, from teaching them the importance of church, to teaching them salvation, to bringing them into a relationship with Christ, and then bringing them full circle. Every time I see it, you see these cars, and I think it's great, especially one with little dogs in them. On the back of these minivans, you always have the mom, like a stick figure, the dad with a stick figure, and four little stick figure kids, and then a dog and a cat. There's not a time that I don't see one of them that I don't think to myself, that's what a family ought to be in ministering for God, even the cat and the dog. Yeah, you laugh at that, but that little black dog went to all the services, didn't he? Probably got a better relationship with God than we do. The goal of every parent in this church should be ultimately to have your children and your grandchildren ministering by your side as a family. That third and fourth generation, bringing them full circle from stage one where you, where you begin to teach them the basics form of dis- discipline and discipleship through stage five where now they stand by your side as your minister partner and my dads and sons and moms and daughters and everybody together out there doing the work of God as a ministry team. The Bible calls our children in Psalm 127, verse 3, it says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. They're God's heritage. They're not my heritage. God gave them to me, and God gave them to you, that we could bring them along and train them and process them to reproduce ourselves in them. And the sad thing is, my, 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 look what we have reproduced. Look what we've done with the only guarantee we have in life. And this is why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 8, undoubtedly the deepest spiritual chapter in the Bible, 
those that seek me early shall find me. It's our job to make sure that our kids get every advantage. I said this last week, probably Thursday night, you know, I was up the last night at camp and it was one of the greatest moving experiences that you, you know, that you, you go to in camp when everybody is probably as close to God at that point they're ever going to be and everybody, nobody wants to leave, everybody wants to stay. We just think, you know, this is the millennium's here, we can have it here. And then the parents come in, you know, and everybody's there hugging and getting goodbye and going back out. And <clears throat> I love all that, but I'm standing there and I'm watching those cars out drive out one at a time. You know what I'm thinking to myself? It was a great week, boy. God did some great things. We kept the world out of their life. We kept the TV out of their life. We kept the radio. We got cell phones out of their life. All they had was a word of God every day and everything they needed, a fellowship, and everything was a sweet spirit. And now they're going out that driveway, that old gravel road. You can hear those cars going, crying down that road. And right outside, it was gate one, gate two, and gate three. Right outside of gate three, the devil was waiting to reclaim what God took that week. Not about you, parents. It's about your kids. About you growing up, taking responsibility, doing what's right. If you got to eat some crow, then you eat some crow. If you got to do some things that are hard to do, you do it. Your kids are worth it. Because they need to advantage every advantage they can give them. We can have everything here, the best camp in the world and everything else, but if the parents fail when they go home, it's all for naught. That's where it has to be. Generation after generation, training their children and the children's children to serve and love God. Your ongoing legacy as a Christian will be the children you, you produce and you train and keep the ministry going for your final record at the judgment seat of Christ where he says, for the fruit of the womb is his reward. And it all starts with helping your child to seek the Lord early and to find him. So I give you that message today on Anniversary Sunday, getting ready to go into uh, all we're going to do today after coming back from camp. I want to give you a few basic instructions in here, and then we'll be out of here because I want you to be there and get down there. Remember, we're going.